Hello everyone and welcome back to this week's special episode of the IVSA Livecast. I have a very exciting guest here today who is speaking to us all the way from the Maldives. I'd like to welcome you all to Minnie, who is a sea turtle vet at the Olive Ridley Project. Welcome Minnie to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So a sea turtle vet in the Maldives, you know, is very something that's very different to a small animal vet working in Oxford, for example. <laughs> I think what our listeners would be really keen to know is how you got involved in this. Um, well, I was I was at one point the equivalent small animal vet, not in Oxford, but in Sheffield. I, I worked four years as a general practitioner, you know, after, quali- after qualifying from the Royal Veterinary College in 2016. And I so I really had no particular plans um, to end up as a sea turtle vet. So it was it was a little bit by accident in a way. I've always had a, a keen interest in exotics and in conservation medicine, but I didn't really have that many opportunities, obviously, being in the UK to, to kind of pursue that. And I found, you know, I actually didn't even do much volunteering or anything because um, I was I was a student in London. So there was really no extra money knocking about. So I didn't really have much of a chance to pursue sort of that while I was at vet school. And I wasn't really sure where I was going to end up. But after four years of, of general practice, I pretty much just saw this job come up. So the Olive Ridley project, um, they, they advertised for a new resident vet, which they generally do every 12 months. And I had heard of them, but didn't didn't know about them very much. And, and but I looked into them, read their website, saw the job opportunity and was like, I must I must try because I felt at that stage in my career, I was very ready to uh, do something quite different. I'd gained a lot of experience. I'd even taken the NAVLI because I thought maybe I wanted to go to America. And then I decided I didn't want to go to America. And then I thought I'll apply for an internship. And then my university rejected me. And I was like, what am I going to do? But this job came up and I realized that was that was why everything hadn't worked out before that, because I'd really wanted this was perfect for me. So it was it was definitely by accident. It was definitely a bit of a stumble, um, but it was at the right time. And I was you know, sort of determined to make it work. So, yeah, I, I made the, made the move and, and I would now love to stay in this particular field but I can't say it was by by plan or design. <laughs> I think that's a prime example of you know everything happens for a reason and it's always nice to see yeah. like the best outcome at the end. Exactly. What would you say is your favourite part of the job? I I love um I really I think one of the interesting things I guess that I really enjoy as different from before is I love the um I love the actual work obviously like the actual rehabilitating sea turtles working with wildlife and you know releasing um turtles who otherwise wouldn't have made it I think that that definitely is the most amazing thing but I have to say I really enjoy um the schedule the way that the day runs because now you know before I was very used to a sort of consultation routine you know I'd turn up somewhere I was a locum before so I would turn up somewhere you know get straight stuck straight in have a nine to twelve consult slot a two till four or five till seven and it just it was all kind of you know dictated for you um and you know there's we are flexible in our clinical you know whatever but less so flexible in the day-to-day whereas here you know the day is very variable some days i'll have a lot of medication to give in the morning but not very much in the afternoon so maybe i can take them for a swim or maybe i can go and do a survey or you know of the turtle of the reef or you know whatever kind of comes up I decide how the day goes and having that sort of level of flexibility to you know if if I have to stay up really late with a turtle one night because I'm still with it in surgery or after anesthetic then that's fine because I can adjust the the next day's work and there's just a lot of like yeah flexibility and ability to kind of run your own day which is uh, is really nice after I suppose having a bit more routine and structure to my professional life. Brilliant thank you. 
So we all know that being a vet is very tough, um, but what would you say is the hardest part of your job? I think um, it's, it's quite, it is quite tough um, coming to term wildlife rehabilitation. I suppose I had not got a huge amount of experience in it before. And we're coming from a, you probably, most people maybe have done, you know, will have done small animal stuff or will go into, statistically speaking, will go into small animal veterinary medicine. And you very rarely lose patients, you know, like it's actually very uncommon. Um, we have, you know, not only do we have a large team, but you know, the animals are, they have owners, people are watching them. There's, there's obviously like a, there's, generally less likely to have catastrophic problems you're not going to make um you know you're unlikely to lose patients on the regular but here um you know i can in the space of like a week i've lost like five before they've just come in and they've just died you know like despite being with them all night you know giving them all the emergency treatment i could do doing whatever you know everything i felt was the most you know important to do um they still die because the wildlife just come in in awful awful conditions and i think i had a, an image of like being some kind of turtle hero like that i would save everything that i turn everything i touched would turn to gold but as soon as i arrived i had like one die almost straight away it was just out of just within a few days for absolutely reasons that we couldn't determine and just yeah and I've admitted you know three in a week and all three of them died within days of arriving and you're like oh my god is it me like you you obviously question yourself like am I the problem um before you have to remember that wildlife I guess is a very different kettle of fish compared to domestic and small animal work yeah no that's a really interesting point and just to touch on that um what, what would you say is the biggest difference that you've noticed between working with sort of domestic animals and working with um, yeah, wildlife? I think the, the nicest thing and the thing I was quite looking forward to was not having um, sort of husbandry issues because I worked a lot with exotics before, you know, not, not a lot, but I had a reasonable amount of experience and I was that vet in the practice who people always, you know, I always saw the weird things. I never refused to see an animal, even if it was like a stick insect, like I'd see all of them. Um, and so I always dealt with the reptiles and dealt. And, and after a while you start to realize that it's, it can be incredibly demoralizing in first opinion practice. In, in like a certainly in a, in a practice that's not specifically exotics either, that everything is coming in as a result of human issues like nobody is caring properly whether through ignorance or you know everyone's just we just don't know how no, not enough uv too much food like not enough calcium they're all nutritional problems like 70 percent of what we see with exotics is a is a husbandry related issue um which is not the case in sea turtles you know they've lived out in the wild like working with wild animals you don't have to deal with like obesity or like diabetes or things all these kind of like more routine issues that you would see on the other hand they are being massively impacted by humans and that's why we're seeing them in the first place so there is a there is a human element but if we don't have to sort of you know we're not trying to counsel owners on <laughs> their dog is overweight we're not trying to like tell people they need to replace their uvb bulb every six months like i don't have to i mean i actually don't have clients to deal with i don't have any clients which is great <laughs> but just the sort of seeing animals that aren't kind of you know seeing animals that have come directly from the wild where they should be and are in the condition that they you know should be in um minus the grievous human human caused injuries but yeah I found that interesting. That's brilliant thank you. So the Maldives is an incredible place to travel to let alone work what would you say <laughs> is your favourite part of living there? Um, so I mean so the Olive Ridley project is partnered with a resort called Coco Palm so we're in Bar Atoll we are on an island that's about a thousand meters by 800 meters so it's a very very small little island 
I mean, yeah, obviously it's, it's literal tropical paradise. I mean, everything is white sandy beaches, palm trees and 30 degrees sunshine all the time. I think uh, resort living is certainly quite interesting. Like I'd never been to the Maldives before I moved here and resorts are strange little microcosms of like society because we're actually just all living together on this island. Um, and uh, I guess also the Maldives is, um, so it's a, it's a Muslim country. There's also that's so there's like a cultural difference, religious difference. Um, there's lots of interesting kind of components. The language is very different from any other language you've heard before. Um, so it's, it's amazing. It's, it really is like I love it and I get to go snorkeling after work. You know, I get to go and watch the sunset on the beach, watching the Indian Ocean. You know, it's pretty amazing. But there are interesting challenges to living in a sort of island this small. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> so we've had some brilliant questions come in from the Liverpool University Veterinary Zoological Society. The first being, if you had one piece of advice for a vet student wanting to follow a similar career path, what would mm -hmm. it be? Um, do not stress about the particular route. I think it's amazing if you can have, like, if, if you are in the position to know exactly like where you want to end up, I think that's, you know, that can be, that can be very valuable, but it can also be quite distracting um, because you are singularly focused and um, you maybe aren't, aren't looking a little bit further outward. And especially for people who want to end up in wildlife and conservation medicine, I do, uh, it's the route I took so I have no other understanding but I do feel like the route I took was the best route because I did have a lot of general surgical experience a lot of like I was a much more confident vet from working in small animal practice you know I, I if I I don't think it would be wise to ever go from straight from vet school to trying to work in wildlife and conservation because inevitably if you're working in this field you're working like I am on my own and in fact I'm the only vet in the whole country bar one other so there are only like yeah two vets in the whole the whole country <laughs> um so there's literally no other you know there's no colleagues here i am fully sole charge and so you know whatever happens here has to be i have to be confident i can deal with it you know i also you just you wouldn't want to you, you you need to have a good surgical base a good medical base you have to be you know a bit more resilient you're a little bit more like prepared to deal with the things you might face and i think a lot of that will come from being you know somewhere else for your first job I don't think it would be a wise idea necessarily to try and jump straight into it because the opportunities are a little bit hard to find especially if you're maybe inexperienced so I mean you know, I wouldn't have got this job if I was straight out of uni uh, and nor would I have thought it would be a good idea anyway because you know I wouldn't have had the relevant skill set to to do it and even though I had no sea turtle experience before I became a sea turtle vet it was less of a concern because I had already got four years of general practice experience that is much more easily extrapolatable, if that's the word, uh, extrapolated, in fact, I think <laughs> is the word. Um, and so, I, and yeah, and, and I very much like had no particular path, you know, I, I kind of wiggled my way around all sorts of different, um, you know, thoughts and different career paths. I was a, first I was full-time employed and then I was a locum um, and then, yeah, I thought, oh yeah, maybe the internship, oh no, maybe not. And just, I think, um, I do think, yeah, I think it is great if you have, if you have a defined goal because it maybe keeps you a bit more focused and you'll be kind of seeking out those opportunities but also like do not stress if you don't find stuff like during vet school you're not going to get much sea turtle experience during vet school that's pretty much guaranteed um, and there's a reason for that and that's because it's a very niche area to go into so I wouldn't necessarily expect you to get that much it's not probably super useful but you know it's stuff you can seek out later if you you know placements when you're at uni and placements and sort of volunteering positions yeah, these are quite hard to find they can be quite expensive a bit cost prohibitive so like I didn't have any before I did this you know it's not it's great if you can but you do not have to sort of 
stress yourself out trying to like find these things like be happy you can get a good be confident in your surgical abilities maybe you know be confident in your medicine really focus on your postgrad experience finding a mentor finding a good practice or you know and that the rest will follow when that stuff is a bit more established so yeah don't worry about it so much <laughs> i think that's really really brilliant advice because i think loads of people worry that they have to find sort of something that they're interested in quite early on so that mm. they can focus sort of when they get to rotations etc but it's yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's great to know that yeah, to have sort of a more general sort of view of practice will probably help you. Definitely. Well. Even even large animal practice, you know, if you work, people who are interested, I was interested in zoo medicine, like so much of if you're interested in zoo medicine is ungulates, it's antelope and, you know, weird tapirs and things on straight, you know, this is all useful if you've worked with cows and horses and like you know all of those things will will help you um a bit more and yeah i did my electives so fifth year i did my electives in exotics because i knew i had an interest and i thought that was maybe the one thing that i could pinpoint that i liked but by no means was it was the only thing and i and for a while i wanted to be a cardiologist and then i wanted to be a neurologist and then i was like no i don't even want to do residency that sucks so i don't you know there's like a lot of there's a lot of potential routes and yeah i just kind of didn't necessarily pin myself down Amazing, thank you. So for those interested in sea turtle work specifically, do you have any recommendations for textbooks, learning resources, or places to volunteer that are ethical? Sure, good question. So there is only like one textbook. <laughs> um, and I have it right here. It's the Sea Turtle Health and Rehabilitation book, and it is pretty much the only one we have. I have full plans to write the next one. Don't know when, but maybe one day in like 20 years, I can I can be good enough to uh, to contribute. Um, but this is that's I mean, it's a pretty hefty book. It is very general. You know, even now, some of those parts are not not out of date, but like sea turtle medicine is so um, new comparatively. And there is a lot of progression in short spaces of time. There is a lot of like ongoing research, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of extrapolating still. We still have a lot of studies into sea turtles and, and pharmacokinetics and all this kind of stuff. So things are moving pretty fast. Um, but that is it. That is a good book. It's a useful start. I actually don't use it very much anymore, but it's nice to have on hand. Um, and it's a really interesting look into the general um, like how to run a rehab center as well it covers a lot of different aspects to sea turtle medicine um so that's an interesting one i think um in terms of like gaining experiences and uh, and places to volunteer so sea turtle veterinary places are, are fairly few and far between um obviously a big shout the olive ridley project we do have a volunteering program and although it's not specifically geared towards vet students if a vet student was to come um then they would be treated as an ems um, opportunity so I would I would treat it as a very clinical um, thing you know we we do all of the clinical stuff um, and get involved in the same way you would if it was small animals um, so that you know that that is one thing we've had vet students before who've done just that and they've really enjoyed that there are a few sea turtle hospitals in Florida for example the loggerhead marine life center I know that takes on externships but obviously that is America so that's a little bit like expensive but they're in Florida and um, there's quite a few sea turtle hospitals in Florida that have programs that they run for vet students who are interested so that may be something to look at there's also something called marvet which is the marine veterinary um like organization and they run symposiums and talks and also workshops and stuff for people interested also in cetacean medicine so dolphins and whales as well so it's not just sea turtles but they do crop up um and um the in terms of getting sea turtle experience there's actually a thing i'd like to do after this so i maybe done it in the wrong order but um is is working on sea turtle conservation projects 
So a lot of nesting and hatching um, projects, especially one that my I had a colleague here um, who was a sea turtle biologist and she went on one that was in Cyprus, which was called SPOT, which is Society for the Protection of Turtles. And they have a, um, she really recommended that one. So on, on that basis, I would probably choose that one. It's, um, she thought that was, yeah, a lot of, lot of nesting experience very quickly um, and not um, an ethical in the sense of it's not an interfering, there's no like interference with the system. It's purely a, a conservation and data collection kind of thing. So there's tagging of turtles, uh, post-mortems if they have washed up dead ones, hatchling management, um, sort of uh, nest relocation, that kind of stuff. So that's pretty hands-on. She said it was pretty, pretty impressive and I'd quite like to do that after this. <laughs> so, because uh, I really like sea turtle um, nesting stuff, which I, I do a bit of here on the island because we do have nests, but um, not extensive. So I'd like to do that quite more, uh, quite a lot more, but that's, um, yeah, there. I think the things to be wary of, um, like sea turtle wise, is sometimes certainly in um, places like I, I think I've heard of them in like Bali and Indonesia and Thailand uh, and Sri Lanka, where they can have like what they call head starting programs, but they're they basically like have a lot of hatchlings that they're raising. Um, and that can be it can be done in a sort of appropriate way, but a lot of it can also be a bit gimmicky. So I, I would always uh, be sort of yeah purely like a tourist trap so that they can pose with baby turtles and uh, doesn't actually have much like conservation application. So I would you know if, if something is like working specifically with like post hatchlings and and like head starting programs i would look at that a little bit more closely um and just sort of yeah trying to try and research that one before before pursuing it but um yeah that's probably my my thoughts on that that's brilliant that's really informative as well thank you so much um so now to focus a bit more on the work that you and your colleagues do at the olive ridley project what are the main reasons for sea turtles ending up in the hospital so we were started, uh, so the Olive Ridley project was actually formed in 2013 um, uh, by our CEO, Martin, Martin Stelfox, who still um, is the, the head of the charity and still extensively involved in, um, he's doing his PhD, I think, or might, might have just finished it. Um, but he he was here as a marine biologist uh, back at that, you know, earlier than that in the sort of 2010s, 2011. And he was working uh, and he kept coming across Olive Ridley turtles specifically, so one of the seven sea turtle species, one of the smallest ones actually, he kept coming across them entangled in what they call ghost nets, which are discarded fishing gear, like so big conglomerates of plastic netting will often end up kind of being chucked off fishing boats or lost off fishing boats, and they'll float around in the currents, and he kept finding not only these nets in the Maldives, but also these turtles, and he was asking himself the question why, because the, interestingly, on two points, the Maldives do not use fishing nets. So the Maldives is a Poland line only country. So its fishing industry is dependent on single catch, which is, um, I, there is some illegal fishing, but like by and large, it is illegal to use nets. So they're not using these nets. The nets that are in the Maldives are not from here. So he was trying to work out, A, why are they here in this particular part of the world when they're not being used here? And then B, why is it the Olive Ridley turtle? Because these guys are not also from the Maldives either. So they don't nest here. They don't even really forage here as far as we're aware, but they kept coming up. Like 80% of the turtles we were finding were Olive Ridleys, even though it's the greens and the hawksbills that are predominantly in this part of the world. So he kind of set out to answer those two questions. So the charity was formed to identify where these nets were coming from. Um, so he, his PhD was was in that, was trying to identify the nest, uh, the nets um, and work out how long they've been drifting. And then also to identify what population of Olive Ridley's, like who, who these guys were and, and why they were at risk. 
Um, and then eventually in 2017, I think we'd you know, grown to a point that he, he wanted to set somewhere up for these turtles to go because so many were washing up in the Maldives and they had nowhere to be recovered and they were coming in with awful wounds. And the only thing that at that point that was happening was that sometimes doctors from local resorts would treat the turtles or sometimes amputate limbs, but without anesthesia and without analgesia. And so there was a massive need for turtles for somewhere that turtles could go so we we uh, looked to find a resort um that would you know help support a clinic and uh, coco palm agreed to to support us to take like to take us on and give us somewhere to to work from so we opened the rescue center in 2017 and so we've been going ever since and yeah we just we we work pretty much exclusively with sea turtles that have been caught in discarded fishing gear um, I'd say that's probably uh, probably 90, 85, 90%. We definitely see other turtles, like we'll see as well, boat strikes, fish hook ingestion, unexplained floating, um, you know, any turtle that needs help, but the most of it is because they've been found entangled in fishing gear. So that's, that's the bulk of the work. And that's the kind of thing that I, I suppose I specifically educate about. Um, as a charity, we still work in, we have a sea turtle identification database, we run nesting sort of management things, we, we do still lots of research around it, but my particular role is to run the rescue centre here on site and sort of manage day-to-day -day needs of the of the turtles and also educate guests. So it's a sort of a point of contact as well with the public to inform them about the, the conservation threats that sea turtles are under because ghost gear is really one of the biggest risks, not just to Olive Ridley's, but to sea turtles worldwide who are such a migratory species and so come across these nets uh, so so many times in their life potentially. Brilliant, thank you. So um, you mentioned that Olive, Olive Ridley turtles aren't from sort of the area, so mm -hmm. did it, is, do you find that it's harder to rehabilitate them back into um, so, their natural no, habitat? Actually. So what they so they do um the reason the olive ridleys are, are affected is basically because um they are my so they're open ocean deep water turtles which is in contrast to for example greens or hawksbills which is going to be the turtle that if you've been away somewhere like the caribbean or whatever those are going to be the turtles that you've probably seen um out on the reef so they're very much shallow water turtles there they stay close to the shoreline um but olive ridleys are very much out there um and then the, what they're doing is they're generally migrating with the currents um past the Maldives to places like India, Indonesia, um, and then they, they're using the currents, the nets are also in the currents and they get caught up in them. And then the Maldives is just in a very unique geographical location to kind of just take in everything that gets washed that way. Um, so there's the currents all kind of push them towards the Maldives. So um, they, yeah, so they're not sort of technically from, you know, around here, but when they when they come to be rehabilitated, what we, what, when they come to be released, what we do is we will release them out to the edge of the atoll. So we'll take them out to the deeper areas, the deep water areas, um, so they can get past the reef and get out of the shallows. And then um, they will basically with the with the idea that they will then find their way back to their normal migration routes. And that is generally what happens with, um, so we unfortunately don't at the moment have the ability to satellite tag our turtles, but there are other, there is another center in the Maldives that has done so. Um, and from other data from around the world, they most rehabilitated turtles will spend like two weeks in the location that you drop them off in. Um, sort of, I think they're probably just reassessing, like reminding themselves what's going on, having some food, and then they will re resume their normal migration routes. So we would expect the Olive Ridley then to, you know, swim out, swim out the Maldives and, and start passing back through um, more eastwards. Brilliant, thank you. And just to finish off the episode today, 
What change um, can we make in our everyday lives that will make the biggest positive impact on sea turtles? Very good question. I think the so the, the biggest thing really it, it is the, the fishing industry. So there's a there's a huge amount of issues of issues with the fishing industry when it comes to regulation and sort of recycling of material and um, I guess accountability. And so especially for what we're eating in the Western world, um, there's not many like anything that's caught with a net basically is is indirectly contributing to this problem of ghost fishing so go you know ghost nets are estimated that, you know nearly 800,000 to a million tons enter the water every single year and this is from and it makes up like 10% of marine debris makes up like a huge percentage of what's going on in the pacific garbage patch so there's a lot of plastic netting out there um, plastic bottles and plastic you know straws are not great but they they've got nothing on plastic netting um, because this stuff will just never degrade and it'll just wash around and entangle things it goes so the, any i think if you if you eat fish i think that probably the best thing you can do is really um be careful about where you get it and if you can get things that are only pole and line caught it's it's complicated and probably more expensive but it it does massively reduce the, the not only the bycatch rate so the rate of so sea turtles are also victims to bycatch so being caught in fishing nets while the fishing nets are actively being used to catch fish that happens a lot and so does it, it happens to many other animals too like whales whale sharks dolphins, birds, seals, they're all really victims of bycatch. Um, and bycatch can be a huge percentage of what actually gets caught and it just gets chucked back in the sea. So anything that will avoid bycatch and anything that will avoid netting, which is pole and line. So, you know, line caught tuna, or whatever stuff like that like line caught fish that has probably the least um potential impact on on sea turtles oh, and obviously it's a massively complicated and multifactorial issue um you know but but that i simply i guess in in simplistic terms really just being careful about your fish consumption and and you know sort of maybe seeking alternatives if you can do or or maybe just sort of being a bit more mindful about where um where it comes from and and being aware i guess that labels can often be quite misleading and dolphin safe stuff and this kind of thing is a little bit um a, a bit of an uncertain term so yeah looking for specifically poland line caught fish is always a good start fantastic well thank you so much minnie um for joining us on today's episode um it was really really informative and it was really nice um to hear something so different um to um you know small animal or farm farm animal <laughs> vet no, thank you so much to talk about turtles i always i do love to do it <laughs> I'd like to say a big thank you to you for listening and for all your support. Don't forget to check out the IVSA Liverpool Facebook page for updates on new episodes and feel free to drop us a question if you have any. If you are enjoying the IVSA Livecast, please subscribe and share with all your friends. Thank you.